0: Hello, 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 and welcome back to Gateway to Anime. How are you all? What's going on? We are the podcast where we try and throw open the gates to anime, whether you're a new fan, a returning fan, or a veteran. Ever wanted to get into anime but didn't know where to start? We're the podcast for you, but if you are one of those grizzled veterans, we'll accommodate you as well. We're doing a lot of things here at Gateway. Anyway, today we have a very, very special guest. We have a mate of mine, someone I work with, and we, you know, do a bit of a... chatting in the office and we both share a very serious love for one of the great anime directors of them all and that is satoshi khan but let me introduce alexi toliopoulos who is a comedian podcaster actor and i would say the film guy <laughs> In this country, if I do dare say so myself, finally it's on the record. <laughs> it is on finally, record. I've been deemed the film <laughs> guy, the film man.
1: Yeah. Hello, my name is Alexi toliopoulos I am a film expert. I, no, I love film. I love film. I'm really excited to be here. Um, if you want to know who I am, I make podcasts often about film. Uh, and I really like making kind of documentaries and stuff. So I've made documentary series, Finding Drago, Finding Desperado, their podcast. Finding Jesus, is a YouTube series. So click the links over to watch that next. Uh, but also I'm making a podcast series at the moment called Sunburnt Screens, the Australian Cinema Odyssey. And it's an exploration of Australian cinema. i using it as like an introduction point to introduce people to what I care about most, which is Australian film. And hopefully, hopefully inspire you to like take your own journey through Australian film. And basically, i am talking to a lot of the filmmakers I grew up in my whole life. So it's a it's a dream passion project of mine. I don't know why I said that like a little baby. Because yeah, you're excited. It's yeah, I love talking about movies. It's my favorite thing in the world. And we're gonna be doing a lot of that today.
0: So for those of you who aren't familiar with Satoshi Khan, he was a visionary director, made four films and a TV series, was making a fifth before his very tragic demise, but the major theme for Satoshi Kon is the mixture of fiction and reality. Basically, he is all about that intersection between reality and fiction and whether or not those two things can be real or not real, the liminal space in which reality and our perception of reality comes into being. So he was an avant-garde in many ways, filmmaker, someone, a real visionary, someone who was pushing the boundaries of animation and also one of the first people to really make adult themed anime popular in the West. It had been done so quite a bit, obviously, of course, two of his mentors in Oshi and Otomo with Akira and Ghost in the Shell, whom he worked with very early on in his career, were doing these things. But I think he, they were still cyberpunk and very sort of genre films. Mm. He was doing something very interpersonal which hadn't been seen before, especially in the West. So he was a very unique filmmaker in respect to the fact that he could just tell human stories. His one-minute story, which he made, called "Hayo," which is on YouTube, you can go watch it. It is a beautiful- We watched it at the, before yeah. we even started we this. We whipped out my
1: phone. We all cradled around my phone <laughs> to watch it. It's one minute long, and I think it's actually a perfect- uh, encapsulation of everything that he does. Yes.
0: Check it out. Search you on high on YouTube. That will give you a great little look into what he is and what he does and why he is so revered and how much Hollywood owes him for what he did. I mean, Inception wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. Black Swan wouldn't exist. So many things wouldn't exist. He is just someone so special and it's really exciting to talk about him. So we'll dive deep into his films now and a little bit more backstory as we go along. But let's get into who and what Satoshi Kon did and why his films are so important.
1: Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure to be here. And excited to talk about one of the great artists, I think of the millennium era of filmmaking. I think that Satoshi Kon, very significant in this kind of movement of film that I have deemed, I've given it a title myself. Uh, I call the Millennium Mindfuck era of filmmaking. Yes. You can bleep me if you need to. Censor me if you must. Or oh, we never would. <laughs> <laughs> but you know there's this era of filmmaking around that turn of the millennium or leading up to it or dealing with it, rationalising with it that I think lives in a lot of like modern surrealism. Mm-hmm. I think Satoshi Kon is like maybe the epitome of all of that. Yes. And I'm talking about stuff like you know Truman Show I think is definitely in that area. The Matrix obviously. But even like you know even talking about matrix a lot of films that i think they're progeny they're inspired by anime so i think there's something about that they have like this interesting like surrealism that i think a lot of like modern surrealism i think even begins in anime Mm -hmm. and so i think he is maybe the most significant voice for me now looking back analyzing it thinking about it talking about it in that kind of surrealistic movement of cinema
0: yeah, absolutely. And it's just such an extraordinary body of work. And, Charlie, I mean, you've we've obviously all just gone back and watched this. And when was the first time you actually watched Satoshi Kon?
2: Look, I think the first one I actually watched was Paprika when I was in high school. Uh-huh. And I think it went entirely over my head. And I was in a phase in high school where if I didn't understand something, I would just be like, well, that's overrated. Like That was my favorite <laughs> word, pretentious, overrated, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Looking back... Ah, oh, so wrong! Oh my gosh, that is a fantastic movie. But also, I have since then learnt my lessons and have watched a bit of Khan. We have talked about it a bit. One thing I learned, we'll get into it as we kind of break down his films, is I just got so much more out of it, and I think it's something that is, wow, mm. oh, like particularly with Perfect Blue. I think mm. you could just say that it predicted the internet and fan culture better than Oof, most yes. things did, Absolutely. and I think that a lot of his works have that kind of, you know, eerily accurate predictions and unfortunately bleak. Like I was kind of thinking to myself, I'm actually upset that this film has aged as well as it has. You know, it's Mm. like unfortunately it kind of predicted the way of certain things, particularly when it comes to feminism, fan cultures, celebrity, dealing with your creative self. There's so much in his films and I'm so excited to talk about all of them. So
0: for those of you who don't know, Satoshi Kon was born in 1963 and I guess part of the reason why he's such a legend is that He died very prematurely. He died at the age of 46. In 2010, he was diagnosed in May with pancreatic cancer and he was dead by August. It was instant, 46 years old. We lost one of the great visionaries. I'm convinced he would have won an Oscar. Mm -hmm. I'm actually pretty salty. He was never nominated Mm. during his short life, but he was of course a film director, animator, screenwriter and manga artist from actually from Sapporo up in Hokkaido. So, best known for the four films that we will talk about, which of course, Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, and Paprika, and a television series, a mini-series called Paranoia Agent. Now, we've talked about Perfect Blue on this podcast before, and I have talked about Satoshi Kon before, but not enough. So, we're really going to dig deep into this. Now, he's worked with some of the most extraordinary people. So, he won a competition when he was in college, just a runner-up in a manga competition which then got him basically sort of semi into the field. But he ended up working with Otomo, who of course made Akira. He became his like protege in many ways. He also co-wrote a manga with the creator of the Ghost in, of ghost in the Shell. So he was like, he was working with the big fellas pretty much instantly, wow. very, very fast. So he got into this very, very young and then from there, sort of started doing a lot of stuff for Otomo, like coming up the ranks. He did do the manga with the creator of Ghost in the Shell, but had creative differences and therefore left the project and never went back to manga mm. again. He's like, I'm done with this. I want to make film. Mm. So that's sort of, I can, go, I can dive deeper into that, but I think that's sort of, we don't need to do that. It's, you can go back and listen to our anime movies episode where I sort of went a bit deeper into his past. But we're here to talk about the films. So his first film, which we'll start with, is my favorite of his films personally and that is of course perfect blue 1997 alexi would you like to tell everyone about perfect blue
1: it's kind of hard to categorize perfect blue it's 1997 it is one of the early films where we start thinking about the internet where we are trying to analyze what it is and express what it is and that's what i kind of think about when i think about this era of surrealist filmmaking and what kind of modern surrealism is especially when it's translated through film which is taking a concept that's kind of abstract like the internet at that time it's quite an abstract concept because it's a whole new way of communication and then finding a way to not just visually express what it is but to kind of find a form to it or literalizing it and I think with Perfect Blue what it does is it takes the internet at times it turns it into a physical space and then at times it turns into a poetic metaphysical space or like a philosophical space as well. But what it basically is, it's a story about a pop star who is leaving pop stardom in an attempt to become an actress and to become a serious actress. Yes. It's kind of more what I would say rather than just like, you know, a hack or a fluffy <laughs> yeah. actor to, to take art seriously in that extent. But beyond that, it is about the fandom around her and the yes. fandom that these kind of pop sensations have and how there's like a twist to it, the darkness aspect of that, like the stalker aspect of that. And what I find so fascinating about it, and you touched on it before, Charlie, was that it's like unfathomable what a prophetic vision this is. <laughs> yeah. Because I would have seen this movie for the first time maybe five years ago. I had right. like, I remember I saw Paprika, almost exact same story as you. I saw it in high school. It was one of the first Blu-rays that the video store I worked at owned Cause it was like an early Blu-ray release. Mm. I have that version when the store closed down. I, that was one of the, God, I'll be honest, like hundreds. <laughs> I took like a hundred movies. <laughs> so it's not just like, oh wow. Like it was special to me. It's like, no, no, I took heaps of them. Yeah. But what is shows that it's special, it's one of the few that I still retain in my mm. collection. So, yeah, it is important to me. But um, <laughs> I remember seeing it around then because I did see it before Inception came out. Because Inception yep. is 2010, 10, right? Yeah. So, it came out before that because I was still working at the store. Doesn't 2006, 2006. Yep. So, it's, I would have probably seen it in 2008, 2009, maybe maybe 2010 i to think when blu ray came out, 2010. This is, for me, the most exciting part of the podcast. For everyone else, the specifics of when a Blu-ray came out would be mind-dumping. <laughs> but for me, I'm <laughs> delighting in trying to figure out the mathematics of this. But I would have seen that and I definitely would have seen Tokyo Godfathers. Mm-hmm. Is that before or after? Before. Before. <laughs> I think I would have seen that before this film. But I, I never registered same person for me it wasn't until a few years later a friend of mine introduced me to paranoia agent and i was like Mm. well i gotta get back into it so i saw perfect blue for the first time I was very impressed by it. But now going back to it again, you know, the language didn't even exist for it. Like people didn't use terms like parasocial relationships and stuff when this was coming out. And you see it now and go, this is prophetic vision of the future, prophetic vision of what the internet will be, prophetic vision of how relationships form around and through the internet, how we communicate the dark side of all of that stuff. I do truly believe that it, it's an area that I'm interested in is films about the internet. As far as like dramatic films, uh, fictional films, narrative films about the internet go, there's nothing that holds a candle to this. Yeah. I think it is proper masterpiece. Going back to it again, I think it's his best film. Oh, it's hard to say. He's made a lot of great films. And I don't always like to say a debut film is a director's best work. Yeah. I feel guilty when I say that. <laughs> but there's something about this where it's a very pure vision of something that is yet to happen. Like he's is Nostradamusing this shit. It's, and it's unbelievable. And it, I was weeping watching it again. Like I found it so emotionally effective and so powerful and I think what he does with his surrealism it's really interesting but what really captured me this time I I don't talk about animation so much so maybe my terminology is a little bit off but the editing of the animation like shot selection and shot reverse shot of everything the way that he plays in that field is just fascinating because it takes techniques from like live action films and does them in a way that can never be done in live action and I find that his shot selection his shot progress the montage editing of his films ah wow yeah. there's no one that does it like him no and I'm sure we'll get deeper into that absolutely as we go through
0: and that chase sequence at the end mm. is one of my favorite chase sequences in any piece of media that I've ever seen it's so extraordinary and, and obviously the big theme with Satoshi Kon across all of his work is the blending of reality and fiction and that kind of liminal space which you can operate in between the two Mm. and how much they kind of meld in and out of each other and like what is reality and then especially, I mean, I'm jumping here, but like with Paprika, of course, Mm. mental illness and those who are living in a state of altered reality, a constant theme in his work and massively in Perfect Blue. Mm.
2: I think, and it starts in Perfect Blue and it really is highlighted in Paprika, but one thing that kind of stuck out to me in this rewatch of all the films I was doing was... I kind of went, there's a lot about, you know, obviously the dream reality, reality, what's that, surrealism, but I think it's about confronting your self and confronting your creative self a lot Mm, as well, particularly with um, the protagonist of Perfect Blue, who you have is a pop idol, who then kind of gets... She has no real choice here. She just gets told she's going to become an actor, even though she clearly creatively prefers mm. to be a singer. Mm-hmm. That's kind of her navigating that. And then you have all the way through Paprika with someone. And it's, Paprika's interesting because I was like, this is such a love letter to film. Mm. You know, like you have
0: so this detective.
2: Absolutely. Mm. And you have this kind of idea of him literally like chasing himself and like facing your fears of doing what you want to do creatively, which is something that I had never noted in his films, really as a through line before. Yes. Um, Perfect Blue from is a really uncomfortable watch. Anyone who hasn't seen it is a lot of con- content warnings on this one. Like oh yeah, absolutely. it's probably one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, It genuinely terrifies me. The visuals of the stalker, everything, what she's going through, a lot of harrowing experiences. Often in film I'll find um, gratuitous kind of assault scenes to be lazy and not something that I mm. will gravitate towards. But I do think that in this film it earns
1: it. There's something about this where in a lot of live action films uh, that deal with like, uh, you know, sexual assaults, mm. A lot of the time, uh, especially when from male perspective or male filmmaker perspective, there can often be an exploitive element that is in the realm of like some kind of titillation or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there's the, he, what he's he's able to sensitively capture the trauma of those experiences. I think it's very rare for a male filmmaker to be able to do yes. like very earnestly, and I, that's what stood out to me more on this rewatch was like oh this is like so harrowing these scenes
2: and in being like prophetic and talking about Mm. that i think that the conversations about her in the film it's framed that she's filming a rape scene as an Mm -hmm. actor and it's kind of like this idea that you're going to do what you're going to do be taken seriously as an actress as someone who used to be an actor this stuff is it does like Mm. it definitely back in the day and even now up until recently is something that you kind of are expected just to shut up and do the scene because Mm -hmm. you want to be a professional and i think that this conversation showing that scene as awful as it is i think He's actually bringing out conversations that are far ahead of this film's times, which are mm. now we have, you know, intimacy, intimacy coordinators, that kind of thing, and people who are now in place to kind of make actors feel safer. And this mm. is a film that's critiquing that long, long before any of that was even relevant yeah, in Hollywood. Like so that's literally actually decades, decades. Yeah, so decades. that was interesting to me as well. Mm. This movie is just—it's beautiful to look at, and it's so. I mean, honestly, the—I feel like his soundtracks as well, are always soundtracks fantastic. Soundtracks are
0: mm. just out of control. Interesting when he's talking about the soundtrack as well because he was had many influences, of course, Kira Kurosawa, Terry Gillum, one of his major, Brazil was one of his favorite films. I would say you can
1: see his editing uh through brazil like you can see the brazil style of editing is very much what informs his sense of editing his pacing he's able to elevate it but also just like literally the way i would describe is like montage like what shots happen in what order And how you go from one scene to the next is very Terry Gilliam. And I think when we get into Millennium Actresses, where that's where it's most at play. Because his favorite films actually were Slaughterhouse Five. (gasps) Oh, that's so apparent. That's so apparent.
0: Yeah. Uh, The City of Lost Children. Uh, Mm -hmm. Then obviously Time Bandits, Brazil, The Adventures of Baron. Von Tralson, yeah. yeah. So those are his favorite films. Wow,
1: almost all um, Terry Gilliam movies, apart yeah. from a couple. Yeah. Who directed um, the Slaughterhouse Five movie? That is, is a it?
0: good question. It Was seventy two George
1: Roy Hill? It makes a lot of sense to hear that. That's that because that film uh, does something that his films do, especially Millennium Actress, where you will be in one scene. And if you're not familiar with Slaughterhouse Five, it's based on a book um, by. Oh, I can't remember his name. Kurt,
2: Von, uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut. Yeah. Kurt
1: Vonnegut. Thank you. Yeah. It's based on a book by Kurt Vonnegut where it is about someone who's unstuck in time and they kind of slip through different times. In Slaughterhouse Five, the film adaptation of it is not well known, especially not as well known as the book. Mm. But the film does really interesting ways to kind of express those where you will be seeing the lead character in one scene. And then there'll be like a a gesture or something that would lead to a cut. Mm -hmm. And traditionally you would say, say it's happening in this scene, I would look to you and the camera would cut to you. And that would be the normal way of telling it. Say that, he will look to this, but then it'll be an entire new, the next cut, the next shot that you'll see will be a new environment or something that happened in the past Mm. or something... Uh, that is yet to happen, mm. but it will. He will cut through different environments, different places, different times, and that's exactly what Satoshi Kon does, like throughout his films.
2: So I remember reading about how he got he landed this film because this is his first, obviously, directorial <laughs> Once, debut, yes. and it's through a JoJo's OVA, right? correct? Which yes. is interesting to get from a JoJo's OVA to
0: Perfect Blue is a, yeah. is, is wild. Well, it was seen by Mariyama, who was the Obviously, at that point, the head of Madhouse, yeah, and all Madhouse produced all of his films, mm-hmm. um, and it was obviously on the back of his work with Oshi, Ghost in the Shell, and obviously with Otomo, uh, they I think suggested him. But yeah, basically, they showed he was uh, Mariyama at at Madhouse was shown that episode of JoJo's, and was like, this guy's amazing. Mm. Let's get him in here, and then I think Otomo was like, "You need to get him in."
2: And like, Perfect Blue was meant to also be a um, OVA as well. It was, yeah. And it's an adaptation of a novel, it but is. the novel is quite different, and he changed a lot of it. Yes, so Satoshi Kon only agreed to do it if he could add elements, including like the idea of having a as he said play within a play so you know how Mm. we have like the sequences of we don't know whether this is real or not or like the idea of the acting and the cuts and everything so it's amazing the author just went yeah sure (laughs) I did what you want but then we ended up with this incredible piece which I think adds so much to it so I found that interesting in terms of history of how this film came to be and at the time OVAs were kind of an answer to if you're gonna adapt something for animation, it was long form series usually. Yes. So if you're gonna do something for animation, you kind of you either did that or an OVA. So to have this as a feature film and to do so well in international film festivals is kind of like a bit of a, a like turning point for arthouse psychological mm. thrillers for animation. So anime in general.
0: I mean, the fact that he got him up to be he was pretty young at this point and just mm-hmm. to, I mean, he had some runs on the ball but not mm. really to have been in the position he was in. But obviously people realized his talent quite yeah. early.
2: I watched um Magnetic Rose which was an oh, OVA yes. which he wrote mm-hmm. and the director who was one of the directors on Akira and the animatrix it was, Otomo, yeah. was yeah. So it was a really it's interesting to see some of the ideas obviously very different animation style.
0: It's a compilation, um, right? Uh, part of a compilation. Yes, yeah,
2: so yeah. there's three, and this is one of the, yep, the, the, the stories. So it's like I a think. 40 minute. Check it out. It's actually really fantastic. It has so many of these ideas. Obviously, classic plays between dreams and reality, and follows characters trying he to kind it. of <laughs> discover themselves <laughs> and finding themselves suddenly as other people and being confused as to who they are. And a lot of chase sequences. A lot of uh, you know, wonderful Satoshi Kon stuff and a lot to like there. it's just a 40 minute watch. So highly recommend that if you're interested to see kind of some of his early work. As I said, written, mm. not directed, but mm. interesting.
0: Yeah, and but funnily enough, uh, all these influences were massive on him. Of course, um, Haruki Murakami as well, and Philip K. Dick, Osama Tezuka, the Godfather of anime. Of course, he was a huge Astro Boy fan. Yeah, but his greatest influence was a musician called Susumu Hirasawa, and Susumu Hirasawa was massive for doing fractal control. That was the big kind of thing. That all of he was a very experimental. He actually did the original music for Berserk. Oh wow! Which is the best? Yep, yeah, it's wow. him. That was that's that's uh, uh, Hirosawa. He he also did Millennium Actress, and at Satoshi Kon's funeral, the theme of Millennium Actress, written by Hirosawa, played. That was mm. his funeral wow. song. And I was going back and listening to a bunch of her and watching reading. I got I almost got into electric. We don't hear a sour podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, like this guy's
0: wild, man. Like he used to do again all of his concerts. He had like so many different bands and eventually had a solo performance where he basically he was an engineer initially, an electrical engineer. Well, not quite, but he had studied a lot of it in electronics and then sort of became an engineer and a musician. So he's built all of these crazy machines. So on he used to be in bands and then towards the later part of his career, he just performs by himself, standing behind these machines and have these, like, green lasers with, like, like kind of theremins where he just puts his hand up and, like, mm. triggers everything with the lasers yeah. and then sings with, like, a head mic on. And it's, like, it's. Inc- and he, I watched him do the Millennium Actress um, theme live. It's extraordinary.
2: Say, show you want to sort of Marrickville rave like in a warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> kind of sounds. Basically like right.
0: It. Um, did he yeah.
1: also do the theme to Paranoia Agent? He did. Okay, yeah, that's just someone I listen to a lot. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's yep. buoyant to me. It's yeah. exciting.
0: It's incredible. Mm. So yeah, and he did a lot. Every one of his albums and live tracks used to have full audiovisual. Accompaniments. Yeah. And that's sort of where Satoshi Khan got the kind of fractal, you know, mm. uh, mm-hmm. ideas from. And that was actually his greatest influence. Before we move on from Perfect Blue, because we can yes. talk about
2: forever, I just want to say we can't have a podcast about Satoshi Khan and Perfect Blue without bringing up very obvious Hollywood um, <laughs> yes. yeah. uh, connections yeah, yeah, yeah. that we have
1: here, obviously. And this might be a recurring theme yes. throughout
0: the podcast <laughs> episode. And it's, you know, one of
2: those ones I think people, if you've ever watched any comparisons, you obviously yeah. know that Darren Afrinoski is a director who has largely borrowed, uh, you know, particular actual direct shots, which I believe mm. he did... Uh, he, there's a shot of her in the bathtub from The Bird's Eye View that is in Requiem for a Dream. It's
0: exactly the same. And it's
2: exactly yeah. the same, but he actually went about that the right way, apparently, to, to buy the shot and to kind yeah. of like... But he also... Black Swan is obviously the film that has a lot of themes, a lot of mm-hmm. similarities. Obviously, you have Black Swan featuring a dancer as opposed to an actress, but there's a lot of things, the train scene, so many very clear, you know, references. And I believe that Darren Aronofsky and Soshi Kon were very, actually quite close. Arosky so,
0: wrote... A, wrote a eulogy type thing for him in a in a magazine publication mm. for, yeah. his, yeah. uh, for, his, for his obituary. But yeah. uh, obituary. he's
2: never admitted. He kind of claims that Black Swan was not influenced by Perfect Blue. Come on, bro. And it's like, Come you on, own the rights yeah. to this. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> you know he knows what? the movie.
1: But it's, it's interesting because I think they, there is a relation to them. But I also think that there's enough. Oh, there's other influences to Black yes, Swan as well, like absolutely. you know, always think of like Suspiria mm. when I watch it or something. Of course, yeah. But yeah, I think it's a very interesting relationship that they have because I know I don't know if, were they close because I know that they'd met a few times but, or they not talked.
0: close. I, th- I yeah. think Aronofsky idolized him. Def- that's very absolutely, but they did yeah. meet a few times. And I think they were like, you know, yeah, they were real. They were pretty cool, but like, yeah, yeah. but Aronofsky obviously just like loves, such, which I think why Aronofsky makes such cool films like what, a, what an interesting influence to have mm. in hollywood at that time these you know? films like,
1: become more dreamlike like yeah they, you know they, they've always had this sense of surrealism like i think requiem for a dream uh and i always say that like a rhymes for some reason i don't know why um <laughs> they uh like that has an interesting use of uh, surrealism to create a greater sense of pain or suffering, Dread and- or to you know to something go beyond reality, like something that's yes. even more real than real, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, but then, like you know, mother's a nightmare. Like that's it's it feels like you're living in a nightmare. I don't like that movie very much, but I think it's interesting. I would like to. I'd like to hear him go more on a record about I their, would too. their relationship or friendship. just want to hear him talk about him because he he has a reverence for him. It'd be so delightful to just hear him, you know, gush. Yeah,
0: yeah and uh, Guelmo del Toro also... Oh, wrote wow. an obituary as well and heavily influenced by yeah. Satoshi Kon as well, of course. But we should probably move on to... One of those. I mean, I could do Perfect Blue for, you know, another yeah.
1: hour. But uh, we should To probably- me, that was the revelatory rewatch of this. Yeah, right? It just... It really, really e- impacted me. I was impressed with it on every single level more so than last time. True masterpiece. Mm. I would... I would hold it in very, very high regard for the rest of my life. I'll proselytise it.
2: Yeah, it's, it really stays with you, that one. It, it really does. <laughs> oh, it's a,
1: it's, so it's truly you brilliant You have to film scream making. in the bath to wash it off. It's the only
0: way. It's <laughs> it. the only way forward. But then the next film, which is probably even more dreamlike but much less sinister, is, of course, Millennium Actress. Now, I really like Millennium Actress. I think it's a really interesting Concept and I mean, do you want to talk? Talk about it, give a little Yeah, it's a really
1: interesting film. I think that it is. I'm really I'm so interested that the Slaughterhouse 5 comparison because I think that these are symbiotic films. Like I think that a lot of the techniques he learns from the Slaughterhouse 5 film because it's also a slipping through time. Mm. But what he does so interesting in this one, it's a slipping through time, but you have that revelation of like, oh, it's like an Alzheimer's or a dementia that causes someone to be unstuck in time in a really philosophical sense or yes. a really uh, psychological sense, rather. Like it's it's the reality as they experience it. Yes. And I found that to be very, very moving this time to actually understand that. So it's basically a film about this actress who is now older and a documentary crew. ...from a studio that's closing down where she made a lot of her work... ...go to meet her to make like a documentary about her basically. Mm. And the film kind of shifts... You never really see too much of like the verite style of the documentary. You're not really like... You don't... The film's not presented to you as a documentary at all. It's the way that they... You're hearing the story. Like I think if you... If this was audio and not visual... Mm. You would see... You would picture it to be a documentary... But you kind of like have this it's a really beautiful way for it to become like a character study, to experience the world through her perspective, through her narration. I really like this. I love all his movies, but this one very much it 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 moved me a lot. The
0: lead act the main actress was actually based off Setsuko Hara, who became a massive recluse after yosujiro ozu's tokyo story mm, great um, movie yeah what amazing film yeah. she was the lead in that and then really withdrew mm. and that's who i believe she's based on yeah just just the blending mm. of of and, oh, but also i mean fact and reality of course the outside but through film and again we mentioned mm. it before like paprika love letter a film mm. in a weird way sort of uh, perfect Blue but like this is a love letter to film overtly
1: so and yeah.
0: how much of an impact it has not only on our lives but our memories of ourselves which you can kind of amazing like music's obviously the big one where you look back at a certain time period when you hear a song right like, oh the summer of 2004, that song is that to me. Mm. Film and TV does that too, I think, in yes. many, many ways. You go back to the time where you watched that thing. Mm. In the same way that Memory Works, where like when you have a, a memory of something, you're actually remembering the last time you had that memory. It's a weird kind of psychological fucking thing. But it's so powerful. And his love of film is so obvious and infectious and and he does it through beauty and horror and terror and confusion. It's, it's such an interesting way that he expresses his love Mm. for the medium.
2: And I think I was reading some stuff about how this one was made and it was meant to be, apparently, Paprika was meant to be his next adapted film. And then he started production on that and then the production company shut down. Mm -hmm. So then I think having this one set with a film company (laughs) that is also shutting down is something that I guess is kind of a bit of a nod to like his own experience working in film and that kind of, you know, because you don't really watch it and go like this is, you know, autobiographical for satoshi kong because they're so you know kind of surreal in their setting but it's kind of interesting to see like bits of his career that kind of appear
1: i think so like it's it's interesting to see like the way that life can be interpreted then through animation. Like yes. I find that really interesting because with film, you just go, oh, it's a one, two, you know, you can you can understand it. But then it's like about the construct, how do I present it? How far from reality can it be? How far abstract, how much of an abstraction can it mm. be? I think he's just like a very elegant example of that. And yeah. I think this film in particular is very much like a thoughtful uh, experience in yes. that kind of
0: way. Yeah, it really is. And I've got a quote from i uh, found in a Guardian article, which was written at the time of his death he says, the human brain is mysterious. We can't share the time axis in our memory with other people. I'm interested in trying to visualize those nonlinear ways mm. of thinking. And I think that's just a really great quote for this film mm. in particular. But, I mean, all of his films. Millennium Actress is like, it's much more probably, I mean, along with Tokyo Godfather is the most sentimental and the most kind of, I don't know if heartfelt the right word, but I suppose heartfelt. Like it's... There's, uh, mm,
1: there's a warmth to these yeah. films. But it's not... It's, a, it's an atypical warmth. It's yes, an atypical warmth. Yes. The warmth is almost in the memory of feeling those emotions yourself. Yes, yes. Is how I would kind of 100%. try to describe it. Because, you know, there's some comfort in feeling melancholy. There's some comfort in feeling sadness or feeling loss in going especially when it's you're reading an artistic interpretation of it you go oh other people have felt these too yes. they've had these experiences they're able to share them and I think that there's something uh, quite powerful and moving in like that kind of empathy and that kind yes. of understanding I think that those films are able to capture them Especially like Tokyo Godfathers, because it's um, it's it's quite snarky in its comedy almost
0: as well. Oh yeah, and it's
1: really it's warmth and it's the warmth of it being a Christmas movie yeah. and all yes. those kind of things. Like it's uh, and also like the warmth of perseverance. I'd say yes.
0: Let's talk about Tokyo Godfathers, which is by far the most grounded in reality Mm. for Satoshi Kon um, obviously but it's also I think probably yeah this one even more so than Millennium Actress most sentimental most has more warmth Mm -hmm. again an unsettling warmth (laughs) It's yes. never it's never like, buy the uh, book, old Satoshi God. Absolutely. <laughs> no, never getting that. It's always something a little bit strange, but do you want to have a little crack through Togo God? I'm, I'm throwing to you all this. You're yeah. a film guy. I'll, like, yeah, let me try. explain them.
1: I can do it as well if I you wish. I will tell but. you this. Do not throw for me for paprika. I won't be able to explain what no. that's exactly about. Not of us can. I don't think anyone can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think he could. But Togo Godfathers, it's a story about three guess like vagabonds, mm-hmm. homeless, displaced people yep. living in Tokyo and it is as Christmas is coming about and it's like about their, you know, their daily survivals and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, like the squabbling of it all. But then they find a lost baby, a lost mm-hmm. child. So, it's about them trying to look after this child and... And hopefully reconnecting this child with people. Ah, it's actually really interesting because now I'm thinking about Satoshi Kon as a film fan. And I think that in Japanese cinema, there's like these foolish characters. Yes, That are kind of like usually, often they can be a background character or something. Like a really easy example of what I'm talking about is in... The Hidden Fortress, the Akira Kurosawa film. Yes, yes, yes. It's almost like the two point of view characters or lead characters of that are the fools. And you see like this greater uh, epic story um, around them. But like they're your point of view. And they're like funny, silly characters. But it's like a quite serious story that they're part of. Yes. And I, yeah, I've never even thought about these two together like that. But yeah, there's something about this where you're seeing like these foolish, silly characters in a rather- Meaningful story, but you get a lot of the heartfelt from experiencing a day in their shoes.
0: Yeah, it is a a really, and also the fact that it features a trans character Mm. as one of the three main characters, not a small thing. Two
2: thousand and three, wasn't it? Two
0: thousand and three, absolutely. It's a hell of a progressive thing to be doing, and it's interesting because there's three different characters, all from you know, there's there's a young sort of runaway. Teenage up. There is the mid to late 20s, early 30s. I'm not exactly sure the age. It's sort of ambiguous of the trans trans woman character. And then a middle-aged man. And there, again, it's the whole idea of chosen family. Mm. It's also a real examination in how close things can be in life to being a disaster and being a roaring success or just how, how close to the edge we all are at all times and how one wrong turn can take you right off course mm. which is a real thing with homelessness and something that's probably not talked about enough and really humanizing a trans character in 2003 anytime mm. it really well is so brilliant with this film and chosen family such a nakama you know such an important thing across all forms of storytelling but this movie does that beautifully and the fact that they're trying to find a, you know the mother of the lost baby mm. or is it lost? Has it been abandoned? You know, that's the question. We won't spoil that. But I just think this film does something really interesting and it is very moving. Mm-hmm. It's funny. And also Christmas, not yeah. a big thing in Japan. But it is kind of made with an idea to to the West as well, I think, yeah. which is quite because he's obviously using Christmas films aren't a thing in Japan really, you know, but clearly Christmas films, massive thing in the West. So another way that the influence has gone back and forth Mm. with Satoshi Kon as well, which I think is why he's so interesting because he he makes very distinctly Japanese films, but with an eye to the West and why I think it's such a shame we lost him.
1: I think it must be like that Western influence of him being like a cinephile and Mm, watching like, you know, your Terry Gilliam's American movies as well. And I think, yeah, it must be like that, informs his worldview or informs his artistic sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's not my favourite of of the four films, I'm not going to lie, but Mm. I still really, really like it. I think it's an excellent film.
2: For years I thought it was something entirely different. I'm (laughs) I'm pretty certain if you go back and listen to our episode we're talking about Perfect Blue, I'm pretty certain I was like, yeah, it's the one about gangsters. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I,
2: was well, like, I was like the it's a mafia yeah. movie i was like what
0: like just is it like
2: like three men and a baby but japan stuff yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah cool
0: yeah 100%. i'm here for it um any other thoughts on that or should we move on to the the crazy yeah. just
2: this one is very different from the
0: others it
2: definitely stands as a completely separate kind of you know the other ones sort of have a similar dream well this still has a dream like kind of sense to it but not quite so literally so no,
1: no. Yeah. yeah it's a I like the word grounding for it because this is the film that reality doesn't bend so much in yes. this but he still uses the same techniques of filmmaking and storytelling that he uses in others in his other films but in a way to create a more A representation of a realistic world. Yes. Uh, So it is the same kind of cutting and editing style that we were talking about. It is that same kind of shot selection. Uh, It is like focused first person perspective when he does these. He uses these elements to create kind of tensions and stuff. But it's also, it's a sweet story. It's a sweet film. It is. It feels like more heroic than some of his other films and stuff. But it's like, this one is such a joyful, easy watch. And, you know, it's a Christmas film. It's one you could easily watch every single year. You know? Absolutely. It could be in that rotation that you always
0: do. <laughs>
1: 100%.
2: Put it in there with Die Hard. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, throw it in
1: that list. For me, it's Catch Me If You Can. It's yeah. this. It's Muppets Christmas Carol. Best. Like, that's what I go for. Those ones. 100%. Nightmare
2: Before Christmas because you can watch it from Halloween through. Yeah. You know,
1: you just oh, have any The perfect it. November movie. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: we should probably talk about Paranoia Agent a little bit. We spoke about it on this podcast sort of recently in our underrated. I brought it in as my my most underrated anime TV series, which I still think that it is. Mm-hmm.
1: Can it- I say on Letterboxd, I have the second highest entry for Paranoia Agent. The second <gasps> really? highest entry. Uh. It is at almost 600 likes. Oh. And all it is is one sentence, this is my Twin Peaks. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's how I can kind of describe it. I really love this. This is yeah. kind of my... Re-entry point into Satoshi Kon. My friends Tom Walker and Demi Lardin are the comedians. I was over at their house. I go, oh, we've been watching this thing. We think you'll like it. Do you want to watch the first episode with us? And I was like oh my god i was so <laughs> invested almost immediately i was so swamped up in it like i think while i was watching it i bought the dvd because oh, wow. i was like i have to watch this i have to own it i can't just like have a little file i can't watch it on youtube or something mm-hmm. i've seen it i think two or three times through oh wow and it's one of those things i'm like oh, i should always just go back to it because it's some um, How was to describe it? It's fucking whack, man. It's so whack. Like, it's it's such a whack concept, whack. whack plotting, and then the way it all evolves around each other just watch that first episode and you'll be in i yeah. think it's got a great hook to it all i love it's got it got a great mystery great and the way that it evolves is so weird it's hard to even say if it's satisfying or not yeah but i just think it's <laughs> yeah. so great i just think it's so fantastic the music is cool everything's cool about it i wish that there was hd version out there oh someone should upsc- upscale it ai get ai get it, on, whatever get it is. to do
0: something helpful yeah you know, like,
1: that's you know. what it
0: should be <laughs> no Paranoid agent yeah I, I spoke about it in the underrated episode, but essentially a story where a many different characters around town are being attacked mm-hmm. by Little Slugger. Little Slugger or Shonen Bat, depending on if you're doing the dub or the sub. Yeah, so I watched the
1: dub or let it be
0: known. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so it's essentially this young lad on roller skates with a bent golden baseball bat, seemingly randomly attacking random people at some of the darkest hours and various times in their lives mm. where they are just, a, you know. But, of course, the question is, is it real? Is it fiction? Does he mm. exist? Is it a madness of the many? How And then how paranoia seeps into a society, how fear can take hold. It is so fucking cool and so artistic. I know a broad sort of lazy mm. term, but it is just something that is so different and, like, Obviously, you know, we watch a lot of anime. There's a lot of very different storytelling styles and tropes to Western storytelling, of course. But this one is different even amongst anime. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's so weird. And, but in a great way, because there's weird, there's bad weird, <laughs> and there's good weird. So, Josh good weird, by the yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. FYI. <laughs> if you didn't pick it up yet. <laughs> yeah, I when I was going to um, ratings last night someone wrote this review about like paprika just quickly he was like after watching the appalling david lynchian attempting perfect blue i I was like what oh <laughs> like, boy just like mm, ignore that <laughs> was no. also that's
1: from Perfect Blue predates Mulholland Drive yeah which I would say is it's closest comparison because Mulholland Drive let me double check I'm not speaking out of turn yeah 2001, 2001. yes yep. so it predates it yeah
0: so if anything he's Connion yes Lynch is Connion exactly <laughs> yeah no huge fan of Paranoia Agent it's only 12 episodes it's you know it's just like a little seasonal 300 video. minutes guys you that's can ex- it you can expect with 300 minutes, you of can do life. it. You can do it. It's it's so. You haven't watched it, have you?
2: No. So no. I will. You know, you guys might have convinced me. Yes. I don't know if you're, enthousi- if you're enthusiastic <laughs> enough about it. So I'll see
1: how
0: we go. I will lend you the
1: Blu-ray from need It will be my pleasure.
2: Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Sold.
1: Yeah. Because it's no, it is not something. sold.
2: You oh, only oh sorry. <laughs> you only borrow. Sorry. Borrowed.
0: Borrowed. <laughs> yeah. To make that clear. <laughs> But it is one of those things because it is super underrated because even amongst anime fans, it's super underwatched. Mm. And, like, those who watch it love it. I mean, so, you know, like, and also, you know... Do you think it's, so it's because it's long? not ongoing because it's a
1: miniseries? Yeah. To me, that's so much more attractive. Agreed. Because it's like, wow, I can't imagine, you know, watching 10,000 hours or something now. Yeah, it just wouldn't but, work.
0: Mm. But it's, yeah, it's like, a, it's like a miniseries, you know, and it's so well done. Yeah, Paranoia Agent, check it out. It's absolutely incredible, very... Conian. Conian. Uh, we're going to put that in. We're going to make this a thing. Uh, yeah. but, he- <laughs> yeah. but let's Netflix, finish. Up. Let's do a live action version. Please. That would be pretty fascinating. Huh? <laughs> I can't even imagine. Actually, no. I'm unless like-
1: they get Darren Aronofsky <laughs> yeah.
0: and Guelmo,
2: and they can do it together. <laughs> yeah. Darren will come out with something really similar. Be like, I've never seen Paranoia <laughs> <laughs> What's a, that? It's <laughs> a girl on roller <laughs> skates. Okay, it's <laughs> different. <laughs> it's a <laughs> golf club. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> let's move into his. Final film, which I actually rewatched watched last night. I've been rewatching watching all of these, but this one, fresh, fresh mm. to come. And this is, of course, Paprika. Paprika is more dreamlike and literally deals with literal dreams than any of the others. Inception owes a lot mm. to this film. And to be fair to Christopher Nolan, he has gone on record and said huge influence, mm. ob- obviously, to anyone who has watched it. But Charlie, do you want to have a lash at trying to tell this oh, one because you know, I don't want to because it's so confusing. But. Yeah,
2: I think I'm the only person that understood completely. Um, yeah. Oh, you and got it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> You're all over it. Well, <laughs> since my um,
2: failed attempt in high school where I decided I hated it because I didn't understand it. <laughs> I have since, uh, you know, uh, evolved as a person and I still didn't understand a lot of it. But no, I don't. think this is a general, I'll give a vague like... Synopsis of what I can gather. And then we'll talk about what our interpretations of it was. Yes. There's just so many moving parts. And actually, I do have a criticism about this film, mm-hmm. about narrative, which we'll get into later. Mm-hmm. But the basic premise is Paprika is a set in the future, obviously. There is a new device. Uh, it's called it HD Mini. I remember calling it Apple Mini, which is a computer. <laughs> uh, like, Again, he's a visionary, <laughs> he's a visionary man. He predicted mm-hmm. Apple. Uh, HD Mini, which is a device which you can hook up to yourself and someone else when you can go into a dream and you can share your dream. Uh, Paprika is a psychiatrist, and Paprika is actually the psychiatrist, like alter ego, who can enter these dreams. Yes. It's like
1: the avatar almost. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. So that's Paprika. Um, basically cutting to the chase the company which paprika works for i've forgotten the actual character's name i just call it paprika you know yeah. same they're the same they're one of. the same this company they work for they've got some prototypes of this it's still kind of only being used amongst certain people because it could be quite a dangerous device it has been stolen and one of their main scientists who work on it is missing and they assume that it's him that has stolen it and he's trying to kind of enter people's dreams basically the device is being used badly and people are starting to have waking dreams where they mm. believe that they're in a certain kind of world and it's up to paprika to try and get to the bottom of this and stop it. That is the vaguest synopsis of this movie. But I think that is kind of that's the pretty good. general.
1: Actually fantastic. Yeah, that was Thank well you done, so man. much. Yeah, you well. I'm very impressed. There you yeah. go. Yeah. That was it.
2: That's all the movie has to say. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, so another whole narrative that's happening mm. here that we have to bring up is that one of um, Parika's clients, who she is... Going therapy to mm. is a cop who is investigating homicide and also investigating some of these deaths that have occurred because of daytime dreaming.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and we follow him. He's kind of like a—is this even a word, or did we just pretend it was Deutragonist? Did we make this up, or is that actually? I'm a pretty word?
0: sure Deutragonist is a is, is a, a term. word. Yeah, because yeah.
2: I tried to Google it once. And I was like, I don't know. If podcasters just made it up.
0: Maybe maybe I just read it on YouTube one time it's what like is that's it? a real term I dude dragonist dude director dude dragonist I
2: yeah I don't actually think Look, it's a word if it is we the said word, it was so much conviction, a yeah,
0: I've been like dude dragonist since so my friend Gerald has been on the show if he's a professional writer he's like I've never heard that term in my life and I was like it's a thing dude <laughs> I love it yeah I'm using yeah. it Yes. Heard let's it bring it in let's first. let's get it happening get it anyway you heard it we did
2: um so you have this kind of dual protagonist sort of. I mean, I wouldn't even say... Don't, don't, do on it. Go Sorry, <laughs> do-tragonist.
0: Thank you. I feel
1: yes. electric yes. every time can hear the words.
2: <laughs> yeah, so we follow those two. And there's a lot of characters, a lot of people uh, with a lot of dream. Like dreamlike. This, uh, the animation in this film is quite astounding. It's probably one of the best feats of animation, I think, in cinema history. Those parades, those dreamlike sequences with that overwhelming kind of sentiment. Every little um, you know, there's a a parade that's full of essentially like little creatures and toys and that kind of thing. Similar to Akira, actually, there is. Yeah. Yeah. But in this way, there's just kind of Every little thing is animated to be entirely different. It just Mm. would have taken so much time and it looks so wonderful.
0: And he used very Um, little CGI. Yeah. He was all about hand-drawn. Oh, my God. that guys a lunatic.
2: (laughs) So the reason that we're kind of bringing out Christopher Nolan and Inception, Mm. which owes a lot to this, is that a lot of the um, detective storyline and the imagery that's used in his dreams uh, is very much... In inception yes. um, yeah. There are so many things There's like the elevator mm-hmm. bleeding. There's the woman That's in his dreams There is like The hallway scene With someone getting shot There is so many The, the shattering of the glass. Glass, shattering glass Which might be my favourite
1: amazing thing that's so So cool cool.
2: (laughs) the visuals in this are just astounding and they really just like you know While other i'd say like perfect blue we have got dreamlike sequences but it's mostly kind of you know her catching her reflection talking to her in the mirror that Mm -hmm. kind of thing this is like full-on giant mechas. like it just goes it just is larger than life and it's probably his most ambitious in terms Mm -hmm. of animation and scale Mm -hmm. um one thing my criticism about this movie is i think there's too many beats in this movie and it's a bit too long that being said, it's still like I give it a four and a half on my letterbox, mm-hmm. which um, I don't think I have a single vote. So, not up there with the paranoia, Adrian. Like um, oh, you, you got one so coming much. your way.
1: Yes.
2: Um, yeah. So, I, that's my kind of. I still think it's really a freaking awesome movie. And it's, yeah, some of the. Again, Love Letters Cinema. We have one mm. of the detectives' dreams, like showcasing different genres, that kind of thing. And honestly. Yeah, I
0: wanted to be a filmmaker. And yeah. yeah it's, it's
2: really great. Anyway, that's Films
1: my. are dreams. Yes. I'll say that films are dreams. They are. Um, I think it's very interesting the kind of cross com- comparison between this and Inception because I've, they're very different filmmakers. Yes. Christopher Nolan is someone that tries to ground fantastical elements in a reality. Like you look at his take on Batman, it's like heat. It's real, you know. Yeah, like yeah. he's not. He's like everything is as grounded as he deems it to be, as as realistic and as real world as he deems them to be. And Inception, I think, it's almost like a pragmatist's take on surrealism. Yeah, I I like Inception. I like it more now, having revisited it for the first time in a, a couple of years ago. Um, revisiting it for the first time since it came out, really. And then going back to Paprika after, you're just like this. It, the difference is someone trying to ground surrealistic images, presenting them to you in an understandable way, which is Inception. Paprika is the freedom of dream logic where things don't have to necessarily apply to any kind of physical realm or any kind of... Genuine logic, but it's like the dream logic, and I think mm. it captures dream logic in a really effective way. That's true. Where you kind of are doing a little bit of that slaughterhouse sort of House Five thing of slipping through different things, looking at things in a different way, things being revealed to you in a different way, and the kind of lack of sense that those make. But when you're invested in it and when you're experiencing it through the film. You slip into it the way that a dream does. We go, well, of course that happens. Well, of Mm. course this happens this way. And like begins in a circus, right? Yeah. And I think that's kind of like showing you what it's going to be is like – you're in a fantasy. You're about to experience a fantasy the way that you were when you were a child, and you had an open mind to what the world could be like. Mm. And that's the only way you can experience them now is through dreams. It's a very successful
0: interpretation
1: of dreams and how they feel.
0: And it's because you're right—the randomness mm. and the the, the the like, sort of massive changes mm. of like I'm here now, I'm there, and then I'm there and I'm here. And like, it's, I think it's his most imaginative film. Yes. Oh, a long yeah, long way. Yeah, yes. and just like and talking about the cutting that he does and the way that he changes Like the way that they transition things in that film where it's like she's running, she jumps into a painting, she is that painting mm. and then that painting's your new perspective, follows you into that so painting cool. and then she's a mermaid and then she's flying and now she's Tinkerbell and now mm. she's Monkey Magic and it's just like what's going on? It's yeah. it Just
2: loves wow. a good chase scene, doesn't it? Loves a good chase scene. And chasing. honestly, I'm here for it. But yeah, you're right. Nolan is kind of the opposite of that in many ways in terms of filmmaking because he makes things gritty and real. Yeah. And so it's interesting that he is inspired by that. But it's really keeps it on its head.
1: Because even if you go like paprika is so colourful and so, so vibrant. Yeah. And Inception, it's not. Like it's not no. those things. Like it's still a really good looking movie. It's still mm. beautiful. The imagery is sensational. But it's so interesting that like paprika is almost like the influence on plot, story, but not feeling and not visual not the yes. artistic the aesthetic of the film the aesthetic is more in line with like you know, pragmatic surrealists like Escher and stuff rather than even Dali or anything. Like, he's like, yeah, my surrealism, it's like Escher, like they've all the staircases the way Escher does, where it's like architectural. And then maybe a little bit like, you know, Buñuel with like Unshan Andalou where it's like, you know, that short film. It's kind of like taking a few of those things. But yeah, it's so interesting because it's like these films have a really strong relationship to each other. But it's like not, not everything, not no, everything. No. It's just kind of like a little bit of plot, a little bit of detail, a little bit of story, maybe a little bit of character. But like otherwise, they're really very different versions of the same kind of
0: thing. And you're right with the colour, especially the, the colour scheme. Like Inception's very muted, mm. very sort of dark, a bleak-ish kind of like colouring. Whereas, yeah, Paprika is literally like an assault, a full-on assault mm-hmm. of your senses. But yeah, they are very different films, but of course- heavily influenced by mm. one of the other but the worlds that they're going to too like Nolan's worlds aren't very imaginative it's like yeah. it's a snow world it's a, it's a hotel world, world it's just like different James Bond levels yeah, or something yeah, worse, yeah literally you
2: know? I guess because they're meant to be dream architects so they're kind yes. of curated and yeah, that sort yeah, of the point yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not actually like they're, make, they're trying to emulate a dream and whereas yes. Paprika's like we're entering someone's mm. like full dream like like, so it's kind of madness Madhouse, yeah.
0: like yeah it's and I, that circus scene is so. When the clown gets out of the car, the opening scene, you just sit there and you go, "Oh, that looks so cool." Mm. <laughs> then when every, then he gets
2: chased and everyone's him. Everyone's
0: it. him. That is, oh man, every you could go through this, analyze every single bit of every dream, so you can just be like, "Whoa, man, it's so much <laughs> in here." But yeah, it's like, and then he has to shoot himself.
2: Self. Spoilers again because he <laughs> he and his storyline is that he like wanted to be a filmmaker yes. and then so his I've,
0: friend his friend went was far ahead of him
2: yeah who passed away and he feels bad that he, he yeah. didn't
0: finish the film he's like why didn't you finish the film yeah I hate, he's at one point it's like i hate film i got no interest in film but
2: yet his dreams are all film yeah yep yeah. 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 i mean we love film so that's the moral <laughs> <you go on. laughs> so of that story but um, yeah it's about like uh i don't know there's, there's something about having to like Defeat your ego of yourself as well. And yeah. like to be bright. Like it's something about that, that kind of carried through all of them where I was like, I hadn't really ever thought about that in these films, but I don't know. There might be something
0: there. I've got a, I've got a quote I used last time when I spoke about Satoshi Kon, but I want to do Dean uh, Dublois, Dublois, who made Lilo and Stitch, How to Train Your Dragon, did a Sigur documentary, Hema and also made Milan. But he said, Satoshi Kon used the hand-drawn medium to explore social stigmas and the human psyche, casting a light on our complexities in ways that might've failed in live action. Much of it was gritty, intense, and at times even nightmarish. Khan didn't shy away from mature subject matter or live action sensibilities in his work, and his films will always occupy a fascinating medium between cartoons and the world as we know it. Mm. And there's another quote which I saw from Satoshi Kon where he was like, "I'm not going to make live action films because if I ever did, my cuts would be too fast for people to follow." Mm. And so, which makes perfect sense. Was mm. that's why he can do the crazy cutting that he does and make it. I mean, still sometimes you can't follow it. Like in Paprika, mm. you're like, what the fuck's going on? But I just think he is such an extraordinary filmmaker. And it's uh, it's really sad because he was making a film called Dreaming Machine. That was his next film that he was making, which he, he I think 600 of the 1500 frames have been key animated. And Mariama from MAPPA vowed to finish it. Wow. He was like, this will be finished. But he has then tried to bring in other people to finish it. I think he even worked with Hosoda who made um, Summer Wars Mm. and um, various films. And he was like, well, look, basically he's now come to the conclusion where he's like this is no longer – bringing someone in to finish this means it's like half a Satoshi Kon film, half this other person's film. It's not – it's never going to be what it should have been. Yeah. Therefore, what I think we should do – this is the latest thing I heard from Ariyama where he's like he wants to just strip it back to the concept – and just give it to someone fresh. Wow. Ignore the 600 frame yeah. animated frames. Someone let someone do
2: go. a documentary about it mm. and just about kind of what the film's idea was meant to yeah. be and everything. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, it's sad he was in the middle of making it. And like I say, but, you know, got that pancreatic cancer diagnosis, dead in three months. <sighs> yeah, so I can't sad.
1: even imagine what he would have done. I actually do think that maybe it wouldn't have, I don't think it would have been live action, mm. but I think he would have revolutionized mediums. Mm. I think that he could be he could not be bound by what what we see animation to be now. I feel like, you know, perhaps he would have I would have loved to see what he would do with mediums that we don't even think about anymore like virtual realities, you know, those immersive experiences, like those kind, I would love to see what he did that. We'd love to see what he'd done with like video games if he could have done yes. something there or even you know, it's so old news now, but he was making films at the right time where I would have loved to see what he would have done with like 3D technology. Like yeah. how to interpret that because I do really like 2D animation films that get turned into 3D. I remember seeing The Lion King in 3D and I just thought that looked really, it was very interesting the way that the mind kind of perceives something that was set up 2D to then look 3 three-dimensional but without becoming, a, changing its form or changing its shape. So I really would have liked to, I think he was an explorer. I think he was yeah. someone that would mm-hmm. have been exploring these other, these new ways, these new technologies, these new aesthetics, new ways to experience what he
0: does. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we lost one of the great mm-hmm. visionaries of the medium. Absolutely, one of the prophets. Yeah, could have done anything and was already doing, you know, we're still so lucky we got what we got. Alexi, thank you so much for coming on and talking thank to you. us about oh, this, Thank man. you so
1: much for having me, guys. This was Honestly. so- I'm, When we started talking about this towards the end of last year, I was like, yeah, yeah I can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. <laughs> I, it's it's somewhat, someone who I really immensely respect- and I really want to explore it. So thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for allowing me the chance to watch all these movies again.
0: Mate, we uh, Thanks, honestly thank you so much uh, to share your knowledge and your passion. It's uh, it's been a joy and a pleasure. So thank you, my man. I'm
2: so glad we got the Australian film guy on. Yeah, the
0: film guy. The, the film to be guy. the film world.
1: Soon <laughs> <to be> world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Next up. Thank you so much for listening as always. If you are liking what we're doing, you can find us at our website, gatewaytoanime.com You can also hit us up on our socials: TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, which hopefully you are watching this on. If you really like what we're doing, you can find us on Patreon as well. It's as little as $1.50, we do special episodes every Friday, behind the scenes footage, and early releases of the episodes. So honestly, if you want to help us out there, every little bit helps, makes a big difference. So Thank you so much. We'll catch you all next time, Alexi. Fantastic. Charlie, always a pleasure. We'll catch you next time. All the best.